our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this amazing privilege and honor to gather together as family this morning. Thank you for this privilege of getting to know you, for that is your will after salvation that we might come to the knowledge of you, to understand the grace and knowledge that is you, that is your Son. Thank you for imparting to us the Spirit himself, your Spirit, so that we might learn and dine on the very bread of life, which is Scripture itself, the Word of God. Thank you again for this local assembly that we might have a place of peace and quiet under the blanket of freedom that so many have served and even died to protect, Father. Thank you for ordaining those individuals in our lives, even though we know, know most of them. Thank you. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the work that your Son has done on our behalf, your only begotten Son that you sent to die on a cross, to cancel out that debt. May we never become familiar with the gospel, but rather spread it fervently today, tomorrow, for as long as you have ordained each one of our lives on this earth. May we understand the great commission on our lives and just press on, Father. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for your faithfulness. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's title is the, quote, difficult passages. Uh, I'll say it again. I've said it a multitude of times. The only reason I have the word difficult in there and the reason it's in quotations is because it's really, Scripture's really not difficult. Man makes things difficult, and uh, man loves to make the concepts of grace and works difficult. And so the Spirit spent the last 25 parts sort of debunking a lot of the things that the flesh does to grace and then obviously works. Go to Hosea 14.9. I was reading this this morning. Hosea 14.9, <clears throat> just to get us situated. Hosea 14.9. <clears throat> My voice is getting a little better. Uh, thank you for the prayers. I've also got a little... Uh, some high-test cough syrup that I got from the doctors. Uh, I did get some chest x-rays. They were clear. The doctor said, uh, no problem. Um, he listened to my lungs. He said he didn't hear anything like pneumonia or anything like that. Uh, and then he gave me this high-test high cough syrup, and I've been pretty good. <laughs> I'm just saying. But here's the thing. He goes, take this no more then one teaspoon, you ever see a teaspoon? Like an actual measuring teaspoon? It's like a thimble. No more than four, every four hours. And he says, and do not drive. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Anyways, it's helped, it's helped a bunch so far. Uh, and there's Tammy coughing, so obviously I must have given it to her. But you're not getting any of my cough syrup. Hosea 14.9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. You ready? Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. 
Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. For the ways of the Lord are right. Amen? Think about that. Just think of the simplicity. What a way to begin a Sunday morning message. The ways of the Lord are right. There's not a whole lot of dazzle. It's just the way it is. And if, the, if all of us and then the rest of the world would just understand that, that the ways of the Lord are right. That's it. There's no arguing. There's no bickering. There's no arm wrestling. They're just right. And the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. I was finishing up the book of Hosea this morning over coffee and came across that verse. It seemed so pertinent that I thought I'd share it. <clears throat> this is consistent, of course, with what's been coming from the pulpit all week and even the latest blog entry titled, I'm Exhausted, Where's the Spirit? Go to Galatians 6, 9. Galatians 6, verse 9. This ought to be familiar to you all because this is a passage that we've gone back to multiple times now over the course of this past week. Galatians 6, verse 9. <clears throat> Let us not lose heart in doing good. For example, ministering even to others. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. You're breathing, right? So you have an opportunity. You're still here by grace, which means you still have an opportunity. And I love this because Paul says, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. I think we forget that sometimes. Especially, it doesn't say, the, it doesn't say your physical household, does it? It says, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And on Thursday, we talked a little bit about partiality. That came creeping back into our studies, how partial humans are to their own households and how much leeway and how much tolerance even uh, of ungodliness in our households that we sort of put up with. And it says especially those of, who are of the household of the faith. Well, what about all of you helping each other? I was thinking as I was reading the verse even, those that need rides. What about them? If someone in your family needed a ride, you'd probably say, okay, I'll give you a ride. If someone in this family needs a ride, where are all the rides? I mean, it doesn't say especially of your household at home. It says especially of the household of what? The faith. That's your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you Alternative translations. Here's the Amplified, Galatians 6, 9 to 10. Let us not grow weary or become discouraged in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap if we do not give in. So then, while we 
as individual believers have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, not only being helpful, but also doing that which promotes their spiritual well-being. And especially be a blessing to those of the household of faith, born-again believers. That ought to be our sort of motivation, our core motivation, to not grow weary, not become discouraged, in other words. To live for others, as Jesus would say. Galatians 6, 9 to 10 in the message. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. Not your friends, not, the, not your worldly friends, those closest to us in the community of faith. I mean, if you just think about it plainly, we're going to be with each other. If you're a believer hearing my voice, whether you like it or not, we're going to be together forever. Thank God I don't have to stand behind the pulpit forever and keep like, well, you guys, come on. But we're going to be together forever. And that's a relationship that really is, frankly, unbreakable. But it's amazing, as tight as we are in that way, how little we pay attention to each other's needs and how much we are partial to those fleshly people in our lives. Now, compare that with the other verse we be began our last two classes with, James 1.25. Go there. James 1.25. So compare Galatians to James 1.25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. An effectual doer, someone that actually does the commands of the Lord. This man will be blessed in what he does. Yeah. And what did we just read in Galatians? Think about it. Especially to those of the faith. Now, I can't quantify, don't ask me to, I can't quantify uh, the amount or type of blessing that you might receive. All I know is what the Word of God says. If you're an effectual doer, you'll be blessed. And what does Scripture say? It says, especially those of the faith. I'll give you the Amplified again. And... James 1.25 up here on the board. But he who looks carefully into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and faithfully abides by it, not having become a careless listener who forgets, but an active doer who obeys, he will be blessed and favored by God in what he does in his life of obedience. He will be blessed and favored by God in what he does in his life of obedience, and I'll give you the message as well, James 1.25, 
But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye, and sticks with it, is no, is no distracted scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in the action. In other words, what the Spirit's really trying to say to you this morning is that if you do take the encouragement from the pulpit, which is really His will, if you do take it to heart and you become an effectual doer, then you're going to be blessed. And don't ask Pastor Ed what that means in your life. Everybody has a different ministry on their, in their lives. I don't know what... I know what partially some of your ministries is, because some are more public than others, but I don't know what your personal ministry is. How could I? It could be you might have the gift of helps. You might have the gift of, I don't know, administration. You might have the, I don't know what your gift is. Encouragement, maybe. I mean, how, how, am, I gonna, how am I gonna tell you how to encourage somebody? Honestly, you, you take my advice, you might get it wrong, <laughs> you know? But this is what I can say that person will find delight and affirmation in the action, which means you'll be blessed while you're doing it. You'll be blessed because you did it. And that's encouraging. And so we shouldn't grow weary. A lot of faith is really, you know, stepping out without knowing, correct? Otherwise, it's not faith. So a lot of times it's just stepping out and knowing that there will be a blessing if you step out. And not with double-mindedness, not dipsukas, not with double-mindedness, not with, you know, I hope everybody's looking type attitude. None of that. Just step out on faith. You'll be blessed. What that means, I don't know for you. I know what it means in Scripture, but that's it. On Thursday, the Spirit began wrapping up our labor on this series of difficult passages, Grace and Works. So let's continue where we left off there, and let's grab the context of where we left off then, where we saw grace and works in action. Because isn't that what the Spirit just said? Grace and works in action. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11, often the easiest example for me to give you from a pulpit is the pulpit itself. Because this is where we gather together. If we have one thing in common that I can communicate with uh, you on, I mean, it's really coming together, right? In the, in the local assembly. I mean, we have this in common at least. So a lot of times he'll just say, hey, you know, look at the example I'm asking you to, you know, imitate that person's faith. Look at the church itself. Look at how they function on your behalf. Look at the servants. Look at how he's training you up. Look at the end result. Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Yeah, that's right. Doesn't that just literally resonate to what we just read in Galatians? Hey, Pastor Ed, don't grow weary doing good. Right? And you'll be blessed. Especially to those of what? The faith, which is, guess who? The body of Christ. So don't grow weary in your spiritual gift, building up the body of Christ. And you'll be blessed. And I am. I truly am. It's a blessing to stand here. It's a blessing to see other people doing their 
you know, and exercising spiritual gifts in the local assembly. Those are all blessings for all of you. The people that aren't blessed are the people who sit there like bumps on a log. And I'm not saying, you know, jump up and start sweeping the floor because that may not be your gift. But if you're going la, 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 every time the Holy Spirit's trying to convict you to do something, you know, like there's an $1,100 plus deficit right now in the church, maybe that's your gift right now. Maybe you have money to give instead of going out, you know, to, I don't know, Ruth Chris Steakhouse or, I don't know, getting sushi all the time or whatever it is you do or smoking your cigarettes or drinking your coffee or, I don't know, having the 600 cable channels. I don't know. Maybe that's your gift. Some of you are just cheap. Oh, that did, oh, that struck a nerve, didn't it? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Some of you are literally cheap. And it's like, how, what happened? How'd you get so cheap? Because you're selfish. And you're not listening to Scripture. And it's more important that you have what you want than what the church needs. It's incredible. But anyways, for the, equipping up, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to what? The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, not just one, I'm one of many, what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. In other words, effectual doers, not just hearers who delude themselves. This is how the body maintains a sense of unity, right? There's only one person in this room that knows everything that the body needs to stay together, and it's not me. It's God the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? And that's why He might convict you of this today and then something else tomorrow and then that thing the next day and something else the next day because He's the only one that knows. So if you're going la, 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 He's like, what the heck? I'm trying to get you blessed out for yourself nonetheless, but I'm trying to keep the unity and the body together and I'm asking you to function this way and you're going, nope. My Starbucks coffee is too important. I'm serious. I'm serious. If you think about the stuff we spend money on, it's unbelievable. The stuff that we do with our time, it's incredible. It's wasteful. Just think about that. And this is what Scripture tells us, uh, that the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the power working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Up here on the board. So on this idea of the body of Christ, we talked about this on Thursday, we are held together by individual parts. Each of us, quote, supplying connectivity and support as joints do in a human body. Imagine a human body without any tendons or ligaments. 
those things that hold the bones in place. We'd have a pile of bones. That's what we'd have. This is what Satan desires. A house divided against itself will not stand. Matthew 12, 25. We would just fall down. So that means everybody in, I mean, there's a lot of joints in the body, right? Just like this, everybody in here is a joint. Everyone. You might be a knuckle, you might be, I don't know, a neck joint or a shoulder joint or whatever, right? Some of you have, you know, tremendous mouth joints. <laughs> right? And you're exercising someone else's gift. Maybe you're supposed to go, I don't know. Anyways, what's the Spirit saying? He's saying, don't give the devil an opportunity. Because a house divided cannot stand. So don't give the devil an opportunity to make you or put you out of joint, to pop a joint out, you know. Arguably, the greatest form of attacks come from other people often those closest to us. And the Spirit's been hovering around this all week, uh, especially with all that talk about households and what have you. Arguably, the greatest form of attacks come from other people, often those closest to you. Let's face it, who's, who's the um, most likely to put you out of joint? Those closest, right? People that are not close to you, they don't really have that great of an effect on you. But what about people that you care about deeply? They have a much easier time, right? Some of them do it just for fun because they're in a mood, right? Oh, it's that time of the month. I just feel like being a biatch. <laughs> That's not a swear. There's one le extra letter in there, right? I think I'm just going to put my husband out of joint. Or the husband, you know, his football game lost, and so now he's going to put the wife out of joint. Or what have you. You're right? Anybody else doesn't have that effect. So what you have to say as you're laughing seriously is become real solemn about this and say, you know, that's true. And what am I allowing? So even these attacks sometimes come from our own households. Go to Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. What does that mean? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's one thing to be righteous, righteously indignant. It's another thing to fester. Right? We're supposed to have hearts of forgiveness. It's one thing to understand something's wrong and state your case, but it becomes a sin if you cling to it in your flesh. Why? Look at verse 27. Because do not give the devil an opportunity. Because if you cling to those things, you're, giving, you're opening the door up for Satan. Up here on the board. We learned this this past week. Do not give the devil an opportunity. How might we do this? We, quote, forget about the Lord who has shown us grace. Our eyes are diverted from Christ. And since we cannot multitask, we have opened the door up to Satan. 
We weaken the joints or weaken as joints when we allow Satan to cause divisions in the body. And that's all he really wants to do. Look, we're, we're a lost cause when it comes to eternal things to Satan. If Assuming we're all saved, we're a lost cause when it comes to eternal things. And so what he can do is disrupt the unity of the faith. What he can do is start plucking people away, start disrupting the unity of even a body this small. And that's what he aims to do. What else is he going to do? If we're saved, we're, he lost us as far as he's concerned. We're, going, we're all set. We're going to heaven. We're going to spend eternity with God. So what can he do, though? He can frustrate the Great Commission. I mean, what are we here to do? Is this the end goal? If you don't know this yet, maybe you need to go somewhere else. Is going to church the end goal? Come on, people. Thank you. Jeez, I know. I know. Oh, no. Sorry. I need to swallow that coffee. Um, it's not the end goal. Our goal is to go out. We're supposed to spread the gospel. We come here, we rest, we learn, we're rejuvenated, etc. We're encouraged by each other's faith. That's all part of it as well. But our job does not end here. If anything, it's our starting point as believers. We're supposed to go out. And if we come together and we're fighting, and we're not encouraging each other, we're not building each other up, we're, we're more weary after church than actually built up, how effective we're going to be when we go out. If this is the mash tent where we're supposed to rest, and we find no rest, how effective are we going to be out there? Satan knows that. So Satan's going to do everything he can to blow this place up. And it's not going to go up in flames. It's not going to go up in flames. You are. Your attitudes, your motivations, you're going to go up in flames if he's successful. And that's what he's trying to do. Satan will devise whatever scheme he can to cause us to turn on each other. If it's not one of my sheep turning against me, and I'm saying this from a personal perspective, if it's not one of my sheep turning against me, then he's tempting me to turn against you. Some people don't think about that. Sometimes it's hard. For, I get tempted all the time. I feel, like, I feel like driving over some of your houses and throttling you. I'm serious. Like some of the crap that I hear is so grotesque. I'm like, haven't, look, at, you're 30, 40, 50 years old. Haven't you grown up yet? Honestly, that's what I feel like saying. Haven't you grown up yet? You're still doing the same thing and you're still blaming your parents? You're still in dysfunction junction and you're still pointing fingers at everybody else? You know what I'm saying? That, that kind of ugliness, that kind of a thing is really grotesque. And if I let that fester, I'm not standing here on Sunday mornings. I'm gone. I'm like, these people are a waste of skin. I'm done. I'm out of here. These people won't learn. But that's what Satan wants, you see? And those are the fiery dots I get. They'll never learn. Right? You see how that is? You see how they're being? You see how they're thinking? Right? They don't, ugh, right? And I'm like, oh. That's what we call the schemes of the devil. Satan would love nothing more than for me to call every one of you up. And I've done this in my mind. 
call every one of you up and tell you what's what. He would love that. Love it. Because you'd all be stumbling down the hill. But I'm stronger than that. I hope you are too. These are the schemes of the devil. Satan wants me to look out at all of you and see your flesh as who you are, but I refuse. He wants me to not see Christ in you. He wants me to see your sins. I, trust me, I see enough. But that's what he wants me to focus on. He wants to say, oh, that's so-and-so is identified by that predominant sin in their life. So-and-so is this type of person. So-and-so is that type of person. And he wants me to start categorizing everybody and go, by your sin, by the way. Oh, that's you. Oh, that one's that one. You know. Oh, that one's that one. Then he wants me to start talking about it, like some of you do, with each other. Start spreading gossip and slander and what have you. Because that's what the word says, right? Let's identify each other by our flesh, in the flesh. And then they start talking about each other. No. So Satan wants me to look out at all of you and see your flesh as who you are, but I refuse. If you are saved, you have been made new. I choose to see you as God does, as holy. I know you're wretched, but you're also holy. You're also made new. Your flesh, though irritating, is temporal. I know you have a bad roommate like I do. And sometimes that roommate's biting me, and I'm like, come on, dude, get off. Right? Sometimes it's, you know, flirting with me. I'm like, get away. This is the flesh, and I know your weaknesses, and I know who flirts and who bites. But it's all the flesh, and Satan wants me to look at those things as who you are. But I refuse. I was reflecting on this topic how effective is an army if all the soldiers are fighting with each other? Imagine that. Doesn't that make the enemy's job that much easier? Go to Philippians 2.14. Philippians 2.14. I hope you see what the Spirit's saying here. Satan doesn't always drop, you know, bombs. He's not punching you in the face. He's like... If I can spread a little strife, if I can get this person in their flesh thinking about this other person in their flesh, I don't have to do anything. I just sort of have to, like, let them go. And then I just instigate something else over here and let them go. And then I instigate something over here and I let them go. And Satan's going, man, now I can have a Mai Tai. He doesn't do that because he never sleeps, but you get the point. He's a very efficient killer. Philippians 2.14, and I would argue, as most of you would, that it starts with people. Some theologians would call it people testing. I'm fine with that. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Okay, do all things, some things, no, all things without grumbling or disputing. How come he gets to do that job? How come he gets to be a deacon? Hey, deacons, how nice was it this morning? Great. Great. <laughs> yeah, that's the right thing to say. 
right? I had to take this foot and insert it up two behinds, one more than the other, right? Everybody wants to, you know, move up the food chain in the church. Some of you are like, nope, I don't. <laughs> but only after you've learned. But do everything without grumbling or disputing. They could have walked out of there and been like, hey, why was you all over me? You're just guilty. Well, I don't know. Shut up. <laughs> I hope they don't talk like that. They're grown men. Right? But don't. This isn't about that. That's what Satan wants. Satan wants people in leadership positions to dispute and grumble and start turning on each other and be ridiculous instead of actually just taking the discipline from the Lord and moving on and making things correct. So do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. There's enough grumbling and disputing out there. We don't need to chime in among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. In other words, can we just enjoy the unity of the faith? Can we stop giving the devil an opportunity to split us up? You know exactly what the devil is up to, don't you? You know exactly what he wants to destroy. He hates that there's unity in the church. He hates when the, the ship is running correctly. He hates when an entire congregation is, is living for the gospel. Hates it. We're marked people. Do you understand? Ever since last September with the reload of the gospel, we are doubly marked now. Trust you me, I've never had so many mental attacks in my life as I have over the last year. It's been incredible. But I also see something that I've not seen as much of, not even close, over the last year. All of you are starting to go out. All of you are starting to have more conversations. People are starting to go out and minister on their own and starting to relate to people personally. Not as little categories. Oh, well, you're in this bucket. And you're in this bucket. And then you're in this bucket. Let me just, let me just take this little firebomb of, of doctrine and throw it at your face. And then I got another one. This one's blue. This one's red. This is for this category of people that I'm... Sinners. And then this one's yellow. That's for this category. And there's no relating or unifying going on at all. If anything, there's a creation of animosity. That's what he wants. I hope you realize all the hard lessons. I've been thinking about this as a shepherd. There's no judgment. I have to, look, I have to tell you these things. It's, sometimes it's harsh. It's hard, right? But I don't categorize you as sinners. I have to teach in a way that opens you up like a, like a walnut, right? So that the Spirit can convict you. But I'm not judging you. 
I'm not judging you. And nor should anybody be judging you. That's how it should be in the unity of the faith. Because we're all sinners. Are we not? We're all disgusting from time to time. Sometimes a lot more than others. Whatever. We've all made mistakes. Some huge mistakes in our lives. What are we going to do? Well, I get a green one now. Am I going to just sit up here and start reminding you that how wretched you are and this kind of a thing? No, we do that so that we can learn, so that we can be honest with ourselves. If we're not honest with ourselves, where are we going to go? I hope you see that. Up here on the board. Galatians 5.15 in the Amplified. But if you bite and devour another in bickering and strife, watch out that you, along with your entire fellowship, are not consumed by one another. That's not the end goal. It's not the end goal of the, of the Christian way of life. It's not the end goal. That's not walking by the Spirit to, to munch on each other and to point each other out and to call each other out. I get to do that. I hope you realize that. I think some people forget that. My job sometimes, on behalf of the Lord, the great shepherd, as an under-shepherd, is to call you out. But that's my job, not yours. I'm working, behind this pulpit, I'm working on behalf of the great shepherd who has every right to pass you under the rod. And if you're out of line, he goes... Or if you're in the thicket, he grabs you and rips you out. But that's my job. But that's not even Pastor Red. That's this office. Do you understand? What he wants you to think is that it's Ed. And, you're, and he's talking about you because you told him that little deep, dark secret you had. Now he's talking about it from behind the pulpit. Oh, my God. I'm not. But I have a special commission on my life, and that is to... Sometimes act on behalf of the Lord and say you're out of line. Uh, but that's a very different thing than me doing it as Ed would in, for the sake of, I don't know, biting or devouring. Reflect for a moment. <clears throat> Where are you sitting right now? The answer in the house of God. This is a house of God. That's where you're sitting. Okay. As Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So let's just say that God is with us here this morning at North Christian Church, for this is His household and we are His children. Is that fair? Satan knows this, and so he assaults us with fiery darts every chance he gets. Up here on the board, Satan devises endless schemes to divide the church, capital C, and the churches, little c, like this one. The easiest way is to get people looking at others' flesh by their flesh. That's really the easiest way to cause division. I stop looking at Jesus Christ. I stop looking at you through the lens of Christ, through the Word of God. I get in my flesh, 
and then I want to look at your flesh. How good do you think that's going to end? How good do you think that's going to end? I get in my flesh, and then I start looking at your flesh. The flesh, for starters, is a judgmental jackass, a self-righteous, egocentric, arrogant, disgusting thing. Do you want that judging you? If I'm functioning in my flesh, that's exactly what's happening. And that's what Satan wants. He wants me to abide in my flesh. He wants me to topple over. He wants me to grow weary and let my guard down. Because when I let my guard down, guess what comes popping up? Here I am, my flesh. Right? It's like jack in a box. Here I am. I got all the energy in the world. Right? And he's like, That's what Satan wants. And we haven't even gotten to you. Because this guy, all he wants to do is dominate you. That's Teshuka. My sinful flesh wants to dominate yours. So what am I going to do? I'm going to hack you down to do it. What does the flesh always do? What does any person that has no love do? That's one of the ways you can see true love. A person who makes it their habit of hacking other people down does not have love. That is a fleshly individual. That person usually starts with comparing themselves incessantly to others. And what they see in their flesh is they don't compare very well, so they hack others down. That's how you know a person doesn't have the love of Christ. And that's what Satan wants. Let's talk about this. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.14. So if you spend your time hacking down other people... Well, Satan's got a big thing to say to you this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Like Elvis? Thank you. Thank you very much. Right? Satan's thanking you. All the way to the bank. So easy, though, isn't it? Isn't that? It's like behind everything, isn't it? If you look at the world, even the so-called nice people in the world, people that denounce Christ, behind it all is that disgusting flesh. Just this little disgusting flesh. And you don't see it until that flesh is threatened. That's that old saying, you know? You don't know anyone until the going gets tough, right? Everybody seems to be happy, which is going to be interesting, because if our country gets any worse, it's going to be interesting to see who's who in this world, who you thought were your friends. Now they're looking to steal from you. Now they're stabbing you at the back, in the back at work. Now they're stabbing you in the back, in the church even, because they're trying to scrap and get ahead. That's how you know. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Okay, so you've got a whole lot of things going on. Jesus Christ should be our centerpiece. We ought to look to see things His way. That is what I've been calling the lens. You want to call it whatever you want, but I call it the lens. Seeing it all as truth. Seeing things for what they are. Read Ephesians 5 for that. Just seeing things in the light. Walking in the light. Seeing things for what they are. Accepting them. Don't judge anybody. Just accept things for who they are. And have Christ's attitude. Have this attitude. If you don't have it, pray on it. 
because he will give wisdom, so says Scripture, to those who seek. 2 Corinthians 5.16, Therefore, with all that in view, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. We recognize no one according to the flesh up here on the board. I've taught on this in the past, but just a quick refresher. According to the flesh, this is what Satan would want you to do. He wants you to evaluate. He wants you to look at the world through the lens of the flesh. According to the flesh, Paul described the flesh's inability to fellowship with spiritual man, to see it all as truth even, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. That's Ephesians 5.13. The flesh is blind, incapable of discerning the inherent goodness of a new creature. Where does that leave you then? If you're in the flesh, so to speak, if you're rolling down the hill, you've grown weary, you're just, I don't know, quote-unquote, tired of doing good, this kind of a thing, and you're just in a weak moment, and you're in your flesh, so to speak, as, this, as Scripture would say, and then you start judging people, you start looking at the rest of the world according to your flesh. Well, the only standard, the only um, weights and balances you have in the flesh are those that are according to the flesh. Do you understand? And so it becomes this whole worldly thing. And that's where people get hyper-competitive. And all of a sudden it's about, well, you know, it's no longer about Christ. Who cares in Christ? Who cares? Who cares if someone's, you know, the president of the United States or the president of the latrine crew in the Navy or something. Do you understand? Who cares? If you're in Christ, we're brothers. Nobody cares. Oh, but I care when I'm in my flesh. She's prettier than me. What a witch. I saw her. I saw you in him. Nobody? Dancing in the rain. Nobody? I digress. All right? That's the flesh. All of a sudden, it becomes a problem. That's how you know you're in the flesh, by the way. When you look at any other person, if the first thing is, how do I compare? Hmm? Right? And then if you compare unfavorably, what do you do? What's that? That's Satan. Come on, let's go have dinner. Let's talk about some other people. Let's hack some other people down in the process. Nobody does that? Nobody's ever done that in their life? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Satan would love for me to see that in you right now. Sinners! That's according to the flesh. The flesh is blind. The flesh is not interested in the new creature. The flesh is interested in judging. Judging in such a way that it comes out on top. It's really that simple because we call that creature credit. It's just this thing. Am I better than the next person? You see this a lot in new believers even. They're like, I'm saved, you're not. Nah, 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 nah. What? I'm awesome, you're not, I have Christ, you're going to hell. No, 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 wait a minute, yesterday you were my friend. I know, but now I'm saved and you're not, and I'm better than you because it's about flesh. 
You're in that old religion that I just came from. You're gross now. You're gross. No, they need your prayer. They need evangelizing, maybe. But isn't that what people do? All of a sudden, they get a little scripture in them and they turn into a Pharisee? They got, start going on Facebook and Instagram and everywhere else and start showing everybody else how high and mighty and lofty they are and how crappy they should feel because they're not them? Oh, man, this is how it goes. I see it all the time. I see it all the time. It's grotesque. It's foul. But that's the flesh. And that's what it means to view the world according to the flesh. How do I compare? Huh? Oh, oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. I look the best. Again, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Again, up here on the board. That's according to the flesh. That's what that means. Satan's banking on it. He's enticing you. He's wearing you down because if you've been alive for any length of time as a believer, you know what happens when you get worn. When you wear down, you're much easier to enter into the flesh. That's when you get weak, right? You're much easier unless you maintain Paul's perspective, the one he remembered from Christ. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Unless you stay with Christ, Satan's going to weigh you down and he's going to take advantage of you. I'm serious when I say that. Honestly, here's a great litmus test. If you're not sure, you're like, man, am I being in the flesh right now? You ready for the litmus test? No charge, no charge. Eddie the consultant. <laughs> Give me my card later. No charge. Are you ready for the litmus test? Okay, this is how easy it is. This is how you'll know that if you're in the flesh. Are you comparing yourself with someone else? End of story. End of story. That's it. That's all you'll know. In any circumstance, any situation, is any part of your motivation have to do with comparing yourself or comparing favorably to someone else? That's how you'll know. That's the easiest way to know. I mean, that includes things like posting Scripture publicly. Oh, I have Scripture now. <laughs> I want to be the one posting Scripture. I want to be the one that says wonderful things and people are like, 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 you're the man. You're the lady, you're the man. I want to be that person. That's how you'll know. So that's a good litmus test, right? Literally, just add, stop yourself. Why am I doing this? Does any part of me whatsoever care about how I compare, favorably or unfavorably, in this moment to those around the situation? If that's you, that's how you'll know you're in the flesh. 
If you could care less, like literally, don't just say it either. I could care less. <laughs> right? Everybody does that. I could care less. <laughs> Those are fake nails. <laughs> I'm trying to be funny because it's getting quiet in here. Right? Stated differently, the only way a believer will ever see it all as truth is to see it through a godly lens. As the latest blog entry describes, that means seeing things the way Jesus or His Spirit or the Word sees them, for they are one and the same viewpoint. This means that if Jesus were standing here right now, teaching us today, He'd be saying the same thing we have been reading in our Bibles, which is the very same thing the Spirit has been convicting us of in our souls. Up here on the board. There's no such thing as inconsistency between Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit. As a godly church, our goal is to recognize no one according to the flesh, but rather by the Spirit a.k.a. also known as Christ and the Word. You pick. They're all the same. They're all the same. And if you read the blog, you'll know where that's coming from. Christ, the Word, the Spirit, they're the same. It's called the Spirit of Christ, right? Jesus Christ, the Logos, which is what? The Word. They're all the same. There's no inconsistency. So let me make this very practical in the way the Spirit's been doing so all week with his consistent mention of households in general. When I walk into this church, I say to myself, this is God's house. Far be it for me to allow on my watch anything or anyone to soil it. This is God's house. And I'm the shepherd. Far be it from me on my watch to let anyone or anything soil it, and I don't care who you are. So stop for a moment. Consider what I just said and ask yourselves if you have that same attitude about God's house. The Bible describes this sense of protective awareness as zeal. Paul had it, of course. Go to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. 2 Corinthians 11.28 and this short passage comes on the coattails of him being you know under the pressure of attempted murder of all kinds of external trials and tribulations and what does he say? verse 28 2 Corinthians 11.28 apart from such external things and see the previous verses for details there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? That's what we call zeal. You see, Paul was getting beat up, people trying to kill him, all kinds of craziness. Read the chapter when you go home. Apart from all of that, he had a concern for all the churches. Who's weak without him being feeling weak? 
who's led into sin without his intense concern? You see, it's, it's, it's inescapable. And I'm sure there's a heightened sense of it as a shepherd. Um, but there's a sense of zeal, urgency even, immediacy. When people start going astray, when sin starts occupying places and starts infiltrating, starts leaking into the church and becomes tolerable, that's a real problem. And far be it from me as a hired under-shepherd to allow it to go on. Jesus had the same zeal too, of course. Go to John 2.13. John 2.13. So you have to ask yourselves, in all the households that you go into, this one, the one that you call home, do you have that zeal? Do you? John 2.13 the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables and he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves he said Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, up here on the board. See, here's the thing. Jesus refused to tolerate irreverence towards his father and his father's house, the temple. Do you have this same zeal? Or do you tolerate irreverence because of partiality or weakness or what have you? Do you have that zeal? I mean, who do you let? What do you let? It's not even who so much. It's, it's concepts. It's ideas. It's the existence of ungodliness. Do you let those things just sort of track through your household? Do you tolerate those things? That's between you and the Lord. This echoes of where we left off before our little four-part series on remembering the grace of God even. Ask yourselves, was Jesus a gracious man? This is the guy who flipped over tables. Was Jesus a gracious man? Scripture tells us or describes him as full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. So the answer is a resounding yes. If anyone's gracious that we know, it's Jesus. Okay, And yet... He got physically violent as an expression of his zeal for his father's house. Just think about that. The most gracious man we've ever known, that's ever lived, got physically violent and verbally when someone was upsetting or being irreverent towards his father in his father's own house. You know, it's one thing to some, you know, just imagine this. You know, someone's, someone's at the mall going, hey. I was going to say something. <laughs> I don't know. Your mom is a XYZ. You fill in the blanks, right? You might be like, ah. It's at the mall. Okay. Now, what if they're on the, on the curb out in front? Your mom 
mama's a, hey, everybody, the mama's a, blah, blah, blah. They're like, hey, this is getting irritating. You going to let that in the house? So they stand in your living room, in your face. Your mom is a X, Y, Z. It's probably going to get a little bit heated, right? Okay. As for me and my household, we what? Serve the Lord. Okay, so how's that any different than someone coming in and saying, Jesus Christ is a fake? Why did it get so quiet? Christmas is about Santa. Oh, stop being so born again. No, seriously. Where's your zeal? So Jesus Christ, the most gracious man we've ever known, ever lived, got physically violent as an expression of his zeal. So is it fair to say this, that grace isn't always nice? Yeah, it's not always nice. Man has pigeonholed grace into a one-sided thing where it is defined as all things that accommodate man's predisposition about God's benevolence towards his creatures. These are inventions of man's flesh. Grace does not accommodate man. It accommodates God's righteousness to His glory. I've taught you this. So it's not always nice from man's perspective. But that would be, you know, the lens that we talked about earlier. A grace-oriented household demands that the leader, that's you men, be righteously indignant in the same way Jesus was. I mean, you're the protector of that house. You are the given protector of that house. Who's going to do it if you don't? That's the divine order of things. So a grace-oriented household demands that the leader be righteously indignant in the same way Jesus was. This kind of intolerance leads to good works. And this is the connective tissue. Grace works grace and works this kind of intolerance to ungodly things in the household even leads to good works which from time to time may mean the equivalent of you know overturning tables and offending those who are making a mockery of god in your household ain't that the, ain't that the the kicker god gives you all these blessings gives you your household and then you allow Someone to come into your household and make a mockery of God. And you're right there with them. Cheers! Oh, that wasn't funny? Bottoms up! What number is this? Ten? Oh, good for you. Yeah, that's awesome. Good for you. Partying with the world. What's the Bible say about that? You're an enemy of God if you're friends with the world. Let me give you all a big round of applause. Nobody's laughing. How come? And we are to do this without partiality. Say it with me. Without what? Here you go. Family, friends, uncles, kids, grandparents. I don't care. Doesn't matter what. Let me rephrase that. God doesn't care. 
Because God is not a respecter of persons, nor should you be. Nor should you be. Hmm. And you women out there, raise your hands. Go ahead. Oh, look at it. It was like, <laughs> alligator arms. It's like, <clears throat> I really would go higher, but. This is, well, I should have said married women. Sorry. When your husband decides he needs to put his foot down in the house, then do what you're supposed to do. Support him. Submit to his authority. Yeah. Nobody likes that. Grace and works. Those are good works, though. Seriously, those are good works. Husband put his foot down. Wife submits to the authority. Hopefully there's no... Hopefully the wife is like, yeah, I've been waiting for you to put your foot down. I've been lifting a load over here. What the heck? So hopefully there's the unity. But those things are good works. Acting on behalf of the Lord in grace is a good work, no matter how it offends those affected. Flipping tables, a la John 2.15, sends the right message. What do we start off with at the beginning of class? The Lord's ways are what? Right. Don't you want to send the right message then? That this is the Lord's house? Don't you want to send the right message then? This is the Lord's house. You can go, go, go. Have, have a blast outside of my house. But when you come in my house, we serve the Lord. You're not going to dishonor my Lord and Savior while you're in my house. You can go sit on the curb. I don't give a crap if it's Thanksgiving. You're not going to bring that garbage in my house. Period. So leave it at the doorstep or don't come anymore. Now, let me put a disclaimer for all of you like, but I was inviting unbelievers in and, you know, people off the street and they don't know what they're doing. I'm not talking about that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about inviting an unbeliever and trying to evangelize them and they're lost and it's this kind of a thing. I'm talking about people dishonoring the Lord in your presence and you tolerating it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what the Spirit's trying to say to you right now. So don't try to get on a, out on these little you know, the lawyeristic technicalities. Because that's satanic. Satan's a lawyer. Don't try to get out on these little, you know, these little loopholes. That's just you being dishonest. You should say that. Go home today. Man, you ready? Go home today, even if you're not married. Stand in the middle of your living room like this. This is the Lord's house. <clears throat> right? Make, make sure the curtains are closed because people might be like, what's going on in there? Right? And don't put your underoos on either because it might get even weirder. Right? Scott. Right? <laughs> Granimals. You still matching pink elephants? <laughs> He's like, it's the only way I know how to shop. Box ties and granimals. <laughs> no, seriously, you should sit there and say, this is the Lord's house. Seriously. And he put you there. Seriously. Why, why is that a problem? Everybody's laughing. And you might do that more figuratively. But it might be fun in front of your family. But do that. Say, this is the Lord's house. And I am going to stand guard. Because I haven't. I've been failing. Or I failed in the past. And it's not going to happen anymore. 
It's just not going to happen anymore. This is the Lord's house. You don't like it? Hasta la vista. Take a hike. Stop bringing your garbage into my house. Hmm. I wonder if we all had that like attitude. Do you know what I'm saying? It's the right thing, and we're standing up. It sends... I'm going to write a book. Seriously. The message... Ready? The messages we send our children. That's going to be a phenomenal book. The messages we send our children. I'm not going to be talking about what comes out of your mouth. I'm talking about the messages we send our children. Because you can say all this. You can go to church. You can say all the right... You can have, as for me and the... Lord, uh, me and my household, we serve the Lord above your doorway. You can have all those things. You can post stuff on Facebook. But what about the reality? What about it? I'm going to write a book called The Messages We Send Our Kids. That's another litmus test. What are the messages we're sending our children? Seriously, what are, we, what are the messages we're sending our children? If the father of the household, the husband, never does this thing, figuratively or literally, what are we saying? Honestly, what are we saying to our kids? And then why are we so upset when our kids end up one notch worse than we were? One notch further away from Christ. Why would we be upset? That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. We've got to start standing up for the Lord, starting with our own households. Stop tolerating garbage in our homes. Stop inviting it in. Some of you really do need to get rid of some channels on your Comcast. I'm serious. Tam will attest, and so will Sean, right? Now, Sean's only 16, right? So it's like we actually stopped. And I'm going to say, don't think I'm trying to puff it up. I'm just saying it. Okay. Oh, look, you just think you're so awesome. Trust me, I'm not. But I'm telling you about an experiment we did. We went through, we all got convicted one day after a lesson. We all got convicted. We had the exact same conviction. We're letting way too much garbage in our souls. We went through all, you know, my list on Netflix, all the movies, and literally scraped away all the garbage. Seriously, threw it all in the guy. I said, can't watch that. Can't watch that, can't watch that, can't watch that. Throw it out. Why? All garbage in the soul. And you know what? Here's what I'm not telling you because I'm all self-righteous. I'm telling you because it worked. Right? I'm serious. We're happier now. We watch, like, you know, silly movies together, if any. We play a board game at the table. Instead of watching, you know, some awful R-rated movie that 10 years ago would be X-rated. I don't want my kid being educated by the movies. What's he going to think of women if he thinks that's sex? Honest to God, what's he going to think of women? What are the messages we're sending our kids? Oh, that's so funny. Oh, the hangover. This one's sleeping with that one. That one's sleeping with this one. This one's sleeping with that one. Oh, my God, Sean, wasn't that fun? What is the message we're sending our kids? What are we sending the message outside of our homes? Hey, you want to come over? We'll watch repeats of, uh, I don't know, Sex in the City. 
Let's watch repeats of some R-rated catastrophe. You pick it. And then you sit there and go, that was awesome. And your non-Christian friend's going, I don't know your Lord, and I think he might have a problem with that. Seriously. I'm serious. So try it out. I'm just saying that. Just try it out. Seriously. Go through your Netflix or whatever it is you've got. Chuck out those movies. Play a game once in a while, like a board game, Monopoly or something. I don't know. Anyways. This is the Lord's house. Nobody's perfect. Just a suggestion. Let it go. Now, with our remaining time, let's begin putting the finishing touches on our series on grace and works. We'll have to elevate our thinking a little now, considering things more theologically even. So we're coming out of the mind shaft, okay? He just wants to put some closing arguments on grace and works. It's like part 26 now, right? Uh, yep, part 26, okay? He just wants to put some closing arguments on it. So just elevate your thinking. First, what have we learned? We've seen this slide about, what, eight times? Grace and works. Any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. We talked about adding to the gospel, subtracting from the gospel, the ripple effect in that direction, the ripple effect in this direction. Um, if you're rippling in the wrong directions, guess what? At the end of grace is supposed to be works, because that's what grace produces. If you've rippled in the wrong direction, the works are not going to be any good either. So the idea is stay this way, understand grace proper, and the works are easy. So, any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. In order to fully comprehend the connection between grace and works, we must venture all the way back to the gospel proper. Ain't that something? By grace at salvation, you have been given a new nature. Like Jesus' perfect nature, your new nature cannot say or do anything inconsistent with grace. Your old nature is just the opposite, hence Paul's own admission of his struggle between the two in Romans 7. Up here on the board, I'm going quickly, we've seen these slides before. You either accept that God changes the believer, making them a new creature, or you don't. Either you accept what plainly stated scripture states, or you reject it. Go to 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's up to you to start synthesizing these things in your own life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. Yay, isn't that awesome? The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Please don't make the mistake that some do by thinking that this is merely some judicial reality. Okay, take a deep breath. Okay. Please don't make the mistake of thinking the way some think, that this is just merely some judicial reality, that the idea of a new creature is just like, okay, there's a judgment from the Supreme Court of Heaven. It came down, and you're, a, you're marked a new creature. Do not do that thing. Do not do that thing. If you're still doing it, then you need to go back to September and start listening again. This is not merely a judgment from the Supreme Court of Heaven. That is what pertains to the penalty of sin. 
the judgment being satisfied, you being, as we would say in theology, justified, that's the judicial aspect. That deals with the very penalty of sin. Okay? That's what we would call the forensics of salvation. But as the Spirit has been teaching us, God does an awful lot more than just bringing down a gavel. He says, I just made you a new creature. That extends far beyond my gavel coming down and saying, you are now justified. Are you justified if you're a believer? Absolutely. But do not subtract from God's grace at salvation. He also says, you are a new creature. Did we not just read that? A new creature. That's not just some gavel thing. That's not just some justify or uh, judicial issue. That's an issue of being justified. What being made new means is that you have been completely reborn. You. And you should say me. Yeah, me. Because that's who we're supposed to identify with. Not after the not according to the flesh, remember. I'm supposed to identify with me. Well who's me now? Well, I've been born again. Okay. This is not some judicial reality. This is a life-changing event, a change in who you are as a person even. Now, let me give you this analogy. While a prisoner may like to hear, they may like to hear a judge has pardoned them. But it isn't until that person literally walks outside the prison walls as a free man that he actually becomes free. Do you understand the difference? You understand the difference? There's a big difference, isn't there? The gavel comes down. Nothing's changed in that person's life. Okay, that's great. But I'm still not free. You're not free until you, guess what, walk out of the slave market of sin. Until you're completely changed, made new, set free. You see the distinction? This is not where it ends. A lot of gospels out there end right here. And they forget about this magnanimous part that you've actually been changed at salvation. That you're totally new. You are totally new. Not just some judgment against you. Your person has been changed. That's very different. In other words, a sentence may remove the penalty, but freedom must be experienced for it to be real. Up here on the board, the new creature. A true believer, a person who has been saved by grace through faith, has been made new. This new nature is a partaker of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. This is a grace gift given at salvation. Well, not at all. There's no partial salvation. There's no hack version of the gospel. When God saves you, he does all these things. The gavel comes down. You are now justified. Is that the only way to consider salvation? No. There'd be an awful lot of scripture that had no way to sit. There's an awful lot of things that happen at salvation. Just read your Bibles and you'll see it. It's not always about justification. Is that part of it? Absolutely. Is it the only part? Nope. You are a new creature. 
is not something a person chooses after being saved. For that supposition implies a person has not been truly saved from sin. I'll leave you with this. Romans 6, 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's a rhetorical question. But we don't live in it anymore. That's right. We don't live in it anymore. We've been made new. We're new creatures. That new creature is alive in Christ. You can't be alive in Christ but dead in sin. You're either one or the other. You don't get saved and then choose to be plucked out of sin later. You don't get to choose to be the new creature after you've been somehow saved. That's a false gospel. But it's one that people teach. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And I think that's an awful lot to digest. We have a video to show, guys. Let's show the video, then we'll close up. So the sorrow that I feel Holding on for life To the only thing that's real I've only scratched the surface I've barely had a taste But just a glimpse draws my heart to change And one side of you lays my sin to waste I don't need to see everything Just more of you Take it all, take it all away Magnify no other name Open up, open up my eyes to you Take it all, take it all away Magnify no other name Open up, open up my eyes to you My sight is incomplete And I made you look small I've been staring at my problems for way too long Realign where my hope is set Until you're all that's left But just a glimpse draws my heart to change And one side of you lays my sin to waste I don't need to see everything Just more of you
Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to gather together in the unity of the faith as family. Thank you for giving us the space to breathe amongst each other. I mean, spiritually, Father, the space to stretch out and be stretched without shame. Thank you for a local assembly that brings glory to you, Father, in whatever small way we might do so. Thank you for giving us the word as our guiding principles and the spirit who inspired it, and of course, sending your son who embodies all of it, who is the very fullness of grace and truth in our lives. Thank you, Father, for keeping these things fresh in our mind. Thank you for convicting us with the truths that they behold. Thank you also, Father, for the great commission that we have, not only the ability and time to relish and embrace such things that we are able to reach out to individuals that are truly lost, Father. In this unity, may we find strength together Encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine, I say to these sheep, Father, thank you for letting us lock shields. For this is one heck of a mess, Father. We're not of it, but we're in it. Thank you for this strength and the perseverance and the tenacity that can only really be edified. By the word itself. Speaking of the word, thank you for it. For it is alive and powerful, able to divide soul and spirit, bones and marrow, even cutting to the truth for each one of us. Thank you for not letting us escape a morning like this without being convicted this way. Thank you so much for all these things, and we just ask for traveling mercies as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.